Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so needy this morning of you. We are needy of your work in our lives. We need you to break through our often cold hearts and transform us by your word. Warm our hearts this morning. Help us to grow closer to you and more decided to follow Christ and know him. Help me this morning to communicate these truths that are so deep, so rich, so beautiful, Lord. And I am so inadequate to communicate them, but I pray that you would use your word to minister to our hearts, to challenge us, to convict us, and to edify us. In Christ's name, amen. I want to start today with a question that I want you to ask yourself. Do you have joy? Do you have joy in your day-to-day life? Do you have a deep sense of contentment and gladness that is not tied to external circumstances? You see, that's the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is tied to our circumstances. When things go our way, we're happy. Everybody's like that. When things are working out for me, I can be happy. But joy is much deeper, see? Because joy doesn't depend on the external circumstances of my life, on other people, on circumstances of what's happening around me, the political situation or anything like that. Joy is constant because it's based on my relationship with Christ. And in the Bible, we even see many times when joy is greater in adversity. The apostles rejoiced when they were beaten because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So their joy was even greater when everything was against them, when suffering and pain came into their lives. The Apostle Paul is a good example of this. The Apostle Paul had joy through many, many difficult circumstances. We know he was beaten. We know he was stoned and left for dead. He was in shipwrecks. He suffered all kinds of dangers and harm to his physical body. He suffered emotionally as he ministered to people that turned from the truth. His friends deserted him. Yet he had joy in all of this and could continue following Christ into adversity with a deep sense of contentment, satisfaction, and gladness. And I don't know about you, but I want that joy. I want to have that in my life. I want to experience that. And that's what the book of Philippians is all about. Joy in our partnership in the gospel. Joy in Christ in different situations. And as you read Philippians, because I'm sure you're well acquainted with Philippians and you've been blessed by it already. But as you read it, keep in mind where Paul is writing from. He's in prison. He doesn't know the outcome of his situation at this point. He doesn't know if he'll be released ever or if he'll face execution And even in that situation, he's writing about joy and says once over and over again, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at today, rejoicing 
in the Lord. And the church he's writing to, the Philippian church, was a church that was initiated in persecution. Paul was persecuted and suffered in the beginning of that. As you remember, he was put in prison. And that's where the whole Philippian jailer narrative comes from. But it's a church that is still facing persecution. They're still struggling. They're still facing opposition and paying a high price for following Christ. The passage we're going to look at today in Philippians 3 is a glimpse into the heart of the Apostle Paul. And it helps us understand how we too can have joy like he did in the face of opposition. It shows us the fountain, the source of Paul's joy that allowed him to go through difficult circumstances and not be shaken. So today in, Ephesians, in Philippians 3, 7 through 11, if you would turn there now, we see two essential components of finding true joy in Christ so that we can delight in him. I don't know if you've ever noticed reading the Gospels and, and forward the inverse paradigm of following Christ. To be the first, you have to be the last. To be the greatest, you have to make yourself servant of all. And today we're going to see that to gain, to truly gain, you have to lose. Let's go ahead and read the passage and then we'll take a look at what we see there. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." So we're going to see two parts today. First, the loss. What we have to count as loss. And we're going to see that in verses 7 and 8. And secondly, the gain. Verses 9 through 11. Going back to verse 7, we're going to see the loss here. In verse 7 and 8. And it says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is talking to us here of a total change of values in his life. A total switch of values. And the, the language in this passage talks about accounting. It gives us the idea of a ledger, like when you balance your checkbook. And, but on Paul's ledger, there's only two columns. Assets and liabilities, credits and debits, profit and loss. And he's going to be talking about what is on each side of this balance sheet as we go through this passage. 
the first thing we have to consider is that the Christian should have a totally different set of values than the unbeliever. Just like we see here, when Paul comes face to face with Christ, his value system changes. And as believers who are following Christ, our value system should be very, very different than the world's. They should see something different in how we value our time, our money, our energy, what we do with these things. What are we trying to accomplish? Because their value system starts in this moment and goes to death. It doesn't go beyond that. It's limited by their time here on earth. It's limited by the things that I can touch, that I can experiment, that I can feel right here, right now. But our value system goes beyond death. And that means that many of the things that are valuable right now have no value for us because we're looking towards eternity. And if they don't carry through to eternity, they don't have any value for us. So that should make our value system very different, and that should be an obvious difference as we move around in this world and interact with people that don't believe in Christ. They should see that we are trying to achieve something very different. Think about Paul. We're going to see in a minute how Paul's value system changed. He was in a very, very good position before he came to know Christ. Within the Jewish system of the first century, he was part of the religious aristocracy. He had the credentials. He was an up-and-coming person of power and influence. And then he leaves all that to travel around the Roman Empire, preach the gospel, and suffer persecution for it. Think about in the minds of Paul's Jewish friends what they thought about Paul. They thought he was crazy. Thought, what, what is he doing? What does he, he threw away everything that was valuable to pursue something ridiculous. You see, so it's obvious that they would look at him and say, something's wrong with Paul. Our value system is totally different because the things that we value, he, he doesn't. The first thing that we need to count as loss, and we see that Paul counted as loss, is personal righteousness there in verse 7. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, and we can look back to the verses 3 through 6, we'll just read that very quickly to see a list of the things that were gained that were profit for Paul. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is from the law, found blameless. He had all the perfect credentials. Things that he achieved in his life, things that he was striving for to accomplish, and things he didn't have anything to do with, such as his family, his lineage. He, he was, if we put that in modern terms, he was born into a rich family and went to Ivy League schools. He had it all. He was set. 
Everything that was valued in that time, he had. And these things were a profit to him. It says the things he considered a profit. Why? Because those things gave him influence, gave him power. Power that he could use to have money. The religious rulers were wealthy people because they used that power. They leveraged it to make themselves rich. So this was profitable. These were things that were literally financially profitable to him. And he says, I have counted as loss. What it's saying here is he made an evaluation and these things that he used to value, that he used to consider his best or most valuable resources are now a loss. It's an evaluation in the past. At one point in time it changed and he counted these as loss. The word counted means to consider, to reckon, to value at. And when it says lost, the other time in the, New Test- in the New Testament that we see this word is when he was traveling and the ship was shipwrecked and it was counted a loss. Why? Because there's an investment of money, right? They made this trip, they invested money, they bought this ship because they were planning to make great gain using the ship to do commerce, to move goods around. They were thinking it was going to be a profit. But then, when the shipwreck happened, all the money they had invested in that ship was a loss. So that same ship that could be a profit was actually a loss. And if you think about it, think about if they were moving wheat in that ship. They were taking wheat to Rome to sell. And I'm talking about the time where he's, going to be, he's imprisoned and he's going to Rome to wait trial And that's when the whole shipwreck happened. And imagine there's wheat on the ship. And this is valuable to them. Why? Because they're going to take it to Rome, sell it, and make a profit. But as the ship is going through the storm and starts taking on water, this profitable wheat, these bags of wheat, are now what? They're a loss. Throw them overboard. They're not only not valuable, they're a detriment because they're going to make them sink faster. So that is the idea here as well and you know what everyone must come to this point to be saved everyone must come to the point of saying my works my righteousness is a loss before God it has no value to please God to save my soul to make me right with him You know, we have an example in the New Testament where um, somebody counted this cost and decided it wasn't, preferred to keep their own righteousness, and it's a rich young ruler. If you think of the rich young ruler, he went to Christ and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And he says, well, you know the commandments. And he says, well, I've kept all those since my youth. I've kept them all. And he says, one thing is lacking. Go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. He says, you don't have the right values. And the rich young ruler knew that that was an obstacle to him coming to Christ. He valued his possessions more than he valued Christ. He valued something that he had more than Christ. 
So why would Paul do this? It says because of Christ. He counts everything else as loss so that on the prophet side of the ledger, he can have Christ. Christ is my prophet. Christ is what I want to gain. So let me ask you, what about you today? Are you resting on your merits, on your works before God? What do you consider gain about yourself? What about you do you value? Do you value your achievements? Maybe an education where you went to school. Maybe sports achievements. Maybe achievements at work. What are you striving for? What is your gain? Maybe it's having successful kids. See, there's so many things that we can hold on to and value. But to gain Christ, we have to count everything as a loss in comparison. So not only are we to count as loss our self-righteousness and anything we find our value in, we are also to count as loss all things, going on to verse 8. It says, more than that, I count all things to be loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. All things... So he's saying, not only is this true that I've just said, but I'm going to amplify it even more. Even more true is this. And he says, I count. Now he's not talking about a past tense. He's counting a present tense. He's saying, right now, I continue counting daily, a continual assessment of what I value. An assessment of worthlessness and a daily recalibration of myself to value Christ. He says all things. What he's talking about when he says all things here is anything and everything that competes for our confidence, our affection, and striving. Anything we would be tempted to try to find joy and satisfaction in. He says because of the surpassing value. He's saying in comparison to these things, the value of Christ is so, so far. It's so much higher. It's the excellency. There is nothing above it. You can't go any higher than that. It is the most valuable. And what is this value? Knowing Christ. The word here for knowing is not, not facts. Not knowing about Christ. It's knowing Christ. It's not less than facts. You have to know who Christ is. We have to know what the Bible says about Christ. But it's so much more. It's a personal acquaintance. It's an intimate fellowship. And he says, knowing Christ, and look here, he doesn't just say, knowing Christ. He says, Christ Jesus my Lord. Christ in all his offices of prophet, priest, and king. And he says, Christ Jesus my Lord. Think about The scriptures that you know, Paul normally says, Christ Jesus, our Lord, doesn't he? Here he's making an emphasis on the personal nature of this knowledge. It's Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he continues, for whom I have suffered a loss of all things. Paul didn't only count them a loss. He actually lost many of these things, many of these prophets Because 
of knowing Christ more. He lived for Christ regardless of the cost, losing whatever necessary, losing even eventually his life. That's how dear he counted Christ, that nothing, not even his physical life, was more valuable than knowing him. And he continues, and count them as rubbish. Rubbish, better translated, dung. And this word here in the Greek is not a polite word. Paul is trying to get some shock value here. This is a vulgar word that they would use for a rotting corpse, for fecal matter, for disgusting trash. He's making the, com- the comparison as extreme as he can here by using this word. In comparison to Christ, all these things are disgusting to me. So now we have to ask ourselves the question, what am I trying to find satisfaction in? What's my goal? Do I consider everything else to be disgusting in relation to Christ, because not all these things are bad, but in relation to Christ, and if they come between me and Christ, do I consider them to be disgusting? So we've seen the loss part of the equation. But really the joy in Christ is not so much found in the loss as it is in the gain. And that's what we see In verse 9, and the first thing that we gain is Christ's righteousness. It says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. When it says to be found in him, it's talking about on the last day, upon a closer examination, the judge finds that, I am related to Christ. I am one with him. I am tied with him. And this means that I participate of the righteousness of Christ. Paul comes to a point of saying, I don't have a righteousness of my own. I don't want to be found in my own righteousness. Because as Isaiah would say, it's filthy rags. There's no worth in that. I can't be found only in my righteousness in that. I want to be found in Christ. And it continues through faith in Christ. And this, this phrase could also be understood, could be translated, the faithfulness of Christ. And Paul's saying, I don't want a, a righteousness that's based on my sinful faithfulness, my failing faithfulness. I want a righteousness that comes from the faithfulness of Christ. Whereas I have never pleased God for one moment, I've never loved God with all my being and loved my neighbor as myself, but Christ never stopped loving God with all his being and pleasing the Father perfectly. That's the righteousness that I want. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we would become the righteousness of God in him. That's the righteousness 
that we want. And that gain is only after counting the loss and finding this righteousness in Christ. But not only do we gain Christ's righteousness, we gain Christ himself. Look at verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That I may know him. That I may gain him is the word that's being used here following our accounting um, terminology. It's a continuing thing for Paul. Gaining Christ. Knowing him more and more and more. And if you think about it, we were designed to know God. When God made man, he designed us to know God. That was our purpose. Any Protestant catechism starts with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, to know God and enjoy him forever. I'm sorry, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And these two things are connected. As we enjoy God, as we delight in him, we glorify him. We are going to live lives that glorify him. We were designed to behold the glory of God. And God has designated his glory to be known through Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's through Christ. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The disciples did not behold the physical glory of God. We don't have any indication that Jesus was extremely attractive or glorious in his appearance. The glory that they observed was in the person of Christ, in communing with him, in living with him, in submitting to his teaching. And so how do we behold the glory of God? It's through Christ. It's only through him. Now, next we have four things, four ways of knowing Christ at a deeper level, at a more personal level. And there's a, there's a Hebrew literary device that is used here, and it's a little hard for me to explain, but it's, it starts something like this. You have an A, B, C, for example, and then a B, and then an A. Does that make sense? So you, the two top ones repeat each other, the two center ones, and so forth. Well, here we have four. And the first one connects with the last one, and then the middle two go together. So it's the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed in his death, that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So the first one, the power of his resurrection, connects with the last one that is that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And what this is used for is to emphasize the middle part. It's like a sandwich. It's all good, but the middle part's a little bit better, right? And so that's what's going on 
right here. But to understand these four things together, we have to turn back to Romans chapter 6. Because what we're going to see here, you're going to see that it's talking about us being united to Christ. And when we come to know Christ, we are baptized, we are immersed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, which is all believers. Right? We are placed into Christ. And when we are placed into Christ, it's as if we suffered died, and were raised with him. Right? That applies to our justification. Right? We are in him. We are seen in his righteousness because God sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ because we've believed in him and we are in him in these things. So let's look here in Romans 6 because I think it will explain it a little better than I just did. Verses 3 through 10. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So in that way, we are connected with Christ's death and resurrection. And that has a lot to, to play in, in, these, in these verses that we're going to see right here. It talks about the power of his resurrection. Now that has a past and present application. We're tied to the power of his resurrection because before we came to know Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he made us alive unto God. So our regeneration is part of that power of his resurrection in a past tense. But it also has to do with our sanctification. Our power against sin, as we just saw in the passage, raised to newness of life. Raised to now have the power to do what is right. As we experience his power, the power of Christ... In making his victory over sin, which happened at the cross, a reality in our lives, we grow closer to him and can delight more in him. So that's what he's talking about as the power of his resurrection. It's being that I am alive in Christ, and as I experience that power in my fight against sin, I grow more like Christ, and therefore I can grow closer to Christ and delight more in him. The next one's a little bit harder. It's the fellowship of his sufferings. What does that mean? We hear Paul saying somewhere else that he completed the sufferings of Christ. Wow, how does that work? 
We don't suffer in the way Christ suffered that accomplishes something for us. But we participate in it. And it is talking about suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there will be suffering for the true believer to the extent that we live godly lives. Now many times we're afraid and we pull back from living, doing completely what the Lord would want us to do. And in that way we avoid some of those sufferings. But it says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now to understand this well we need to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now look at this verse. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. So in living as Christians and taking the gospel through whatever means is available to us and serving the Lord, we are going to encounter the suffer, suffering, opposition, persecution. And that is the suffering of Christ. We are in a way participating of the suffering of Christ. But it doesn't stop there. In that suffering... Christ draws near in a special way to comfort us. And that is how we accomplish knowing Christ more, having a deeper fellowship with him as we fellowship with him in his suffering. And we are in a way made fellows, we fellowship in the suffering of Christ. The next one is being conformed to his death. In 2 Corinthians 4, if you're still there, just turn a couple pages. 2 Corinthians 4, we're going to understand that a little better in verses 9 and 10. It says, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So we are dead to sin. We have participated of the, the death of Christ and we are now dead to sin. But as we live lives that to a greater extent reflect Christ, we experience a closer communion with him. That makes sense? As we participate of the death of Christ, we are dead to sin. As we live that reality out in our lives and put away habits of sin, we are going to experience a closer walk with Christ. And the last one that I may attain, the resurrection of the dead in verse 11. Back to our passage in Philippians in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. At first reading, you would think that Paul is not sure whether he is going to experience the resurrection of the saints to eternal life. He's not unsure. The word there 
that is that I may attain, is that I may reach. Paul is looking at the final goal of all these other things. As he grows closer to Christ and lives in a way that honors Christ more, he's looking at the goal. He's looking at the set, this point where sanctification will become complete in our glorification, and he will no longer have to battle with sin. And he will know Christ as he is. Since we will be glorified and sin will completely be done away with, the presence of sin will be done away with in us, we will then know him as he is. And that's what Paul is striving for. So to conclude today, I just want to ask a few questions. Let's ask ourselves these questions. Where am I this morning? Have I counted everything a loss in order to gain Christ and be found in him? Have you found the pearl of great price that is the Lord Jesus Christ that's worth losing everything, selling everything to purchase, even though we can't purchase, but follow the illustration, to gain him? He's worth losing it all to gain. Believer, have you been bedazzled by the attractions of Vanity Fair as you're making your way to the celestial city and you're going through this Vanity Fair of this world? Have you started looking at the attractions of this world, the things that the world values, and lost sight of Christ and pursuing a deeper knowledge of Him? Do you seek Him daily in prayer? Many times our times of prayer can be so rote and so dead. But our time of prayer is a seeking. Are we seeking to know Christ more? When we read the Bible, are we seeking to squeeze out any glimpse of the glory of Christ that we can see in it? And are we taking those truths and then meditating on them for 10, for 15, for 20 minutes, for an hour? This is what it's going to take to understand Christ and who he is. It's so easy for us to say things like, Christ died for me, but how many hours could we spend appropriating this truth and asking the Holy Spirit to really help us understand that and grasp that? Do you trustingly and sacrificially obey him, suffering the cost of doing so and finding the fellowship of his suffering in that? Do you work out your salvation with fear and trembling and experience a conformity to his death as you mortify sin in your life? I know that as I look at these questions, this is convicting to me because it's so easy to lose sight of Christ and our Christianity becomes so boring. How can something that is so boring for us be something that in Paul was a consuming fire to go on and nothing could stop him. No suffering, no persecution could ever stop him because he knew Christ and had his anchor set deep in the person of Christ. This is how Paul found his delight in Christ and it became the quest of his life. To know our Lord Jesus Christ more. I hope that all of us this morning could say as Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on 
so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we fall so short. So woefully short, Lord, of what we should be. I pray that you would forgive us and that you would help us to live these realities, Lord, that are so challenging, and yet we're missing out on so much, so much in Christ. You want us to experience that joy. You want us to grow and become more like Christ and have that closer relationship with him. Help us to make that our goal as well. Amen.